Well, let us go to God in prayer again. We need prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for, again, for this day and this time. And we just uh, ask that you would bless your word. And, Lord, that you would uh, make it bear fruit in our hearts, Lord. We thank you that it is living and active, Lord, that it is not bound by any human convention, Lord, that it is above everything, Lord, and it is eternal, Lord, and it can speak to our hearts at any time, Lord, and, and be like a sharp sword and divide the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, even. So, Lord, we ask that you would um, use this uh, message, Lord, and that it is your words, not mine, that you would uh, impact our lives, change our lives, transform us for your uh, purposes, for your glory, Lord, um, for our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm not going to read the whole passage. Uh, we're in Joshua chapter 2, <laughs> I should say, by the way, Joshua chapter 2, and the title, God Chooses Unexpected People. So I'll give you a chance to turn there. Um, I'm just going to go through uh, sections of it and uh, read that as we go. So the Bible and all of Christian history really is full of examples of God using unexpected people. Obviously not unexpected from God's sovereign perspective and his foreknowledge, but from our limited human one. And that's what God loves to do. He loves to do the unexpected, to take our preconceptions of how things should be and what people, who people are, and just turn them on their ears. We all know stories of God's love and power transforming lives of people we would least expect. We could be here forever telling awesome conversion um, stories. And maybe that's our stories too, right? And, and in, in a sense, that is all of us. Before Jesus, we all were dead in sin and had no hope. God's salvation is unexpected on a human level. And there are those, though, from a, on a human worldly perspective that, you know, it seems like they're worse off, you know? There, there's more sin, more baggage, more things to deal with. And, and to us, it looks like, wow, that, that looks like such an impossible situation. Of course, from a divine perspective, it's not, it doesn't, that doesn't matter to God, right? But from our human perspective, there's just, it's like we see the wreck and waste that sin brings in people's lives. And sometimes it, it is completely overwhelming. You know, those who everybody had just written off, maybe as just the losers, as hopeless, as lost causes, as just too far gone for, for God or anybody to work in their lives. Maybe those that were in deep bondage to sin in, in a powerful way. Those involved in crime, in gangs, those in prison, those with addictions, 
those involved in the occult and false religion, those who just have been just completely abused their whole lives, those who are diehard atheists who you would think, well, they're never going to believe. I'm reminded of the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Really, uh, Paul is speaking to this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And that's really what God does. He's in the business of redeeming lives for his kingdom and his glory. And I love the Bible for its realness. It doesn't gloss over the past sin and failures of people. It tells it like it is. You know, there's, these are accounts of real people struggling with real issues, and God chooses them and redeems them, and they can overcome them through God's power. We think of Abraham. You know, he is known as the father of faith. He has amazing faith. He wasn't perfect. He doubted God a few times, and it caused some problems, caused him some problems. Think of Jacob. He, he was known as, as a thief, as, as a grasper, um, one who deceives. Moses. Moses had some speaking issues. Moses felt inadequate to the call of God on his life. Think of Gideon. Gideon was in, in fear. He was threshing grain in a hole, which doesn't work. And so, you know, he was afraid, but God used him. Think of David. He had, you know, again, it was a man after God's own heart. But we know he had his failings. He was a murderer and an adulterer. We think of Peter, one who denied Jesus. Paul was, was a persecutor and murderer of Christians and, um, you know, vowed to, to work against Christ. God redeemed him. We think of Mark, John Mark, one of Paul's uh, missionary uh, helpers who we know at one point abandoned Paul to the ministry and, and left, and it caused a great rift, right, between Paul and Barnabas. But God worked in Mark's life and brought him back and in, into fellowship again. We think of Timothy, Timothy a pastor there in Ephesus, who was young and who Paul said was timid, right, was, was, had a timid spirit. And yet God worked and can work in all of, did work in all of their lives and through them. And today we're going to take a look 
at a great example of God working in somebody who is unexpected in the account of Rahab and the spies. Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So, continuing the account in Joshua from the last passage, we saw that Israel was done wandering in the wilderness. Uh, They had learned their lesson at that time from uh, their rebellion and their complaining and rejection of um, God's plan to go into the promised land, and so they're ready to enter the promised land again. Moses, who had led them this far, has died, as he wasn't able to enter the promised land. And so God commissions his successor, his second-in-command, Joshua, to now be the leader of the Israelites. He promises him that he will be with him like Moses. He will never leave or forsake him. He commands him to memorize and obey the law, and in doing so, he will be successful. He exhorts him to be courageous in the Lord, not to fear, but to trust in the Lord. So armed with the blessings, the promises, and the word of God, Joshua now prepares to enter Canaan. So as he's a wise leader, a wise commander, the first thing he does, as he knows from experience, is to go and gain intelligence about the enemy. That's how battles are won, right? By knowing more. And, um, and so he sends two spies into the land, which he was one of the spies um, 40 years ago, him and Caleb, went into the land. And they were the only two that brought a good report. So he sends these two spies to scout the land, especially the city of Jericho, to report on the strengths and weaknesses. He does it secretly, as he remembers the last time that of the 12 spies who went in, uh, only Joshua and Caleb brought a good report. So he um, wants to do it secretly just to not discourage the people, right? To, to not have them get back into the kind of, you know, oh no, all is lost mentality. And so just does it secretly and see, see what they say. So go, he, they go to the city of Jericho. So knowing a little bit, you have to know a little bit about the geography of Israel. 
Um, it's really surrounded by mountains, especially on the east side uh, where the Jordan is. So there's wilderness and mountains pretty much along that whole east boundary of Israel. And there's very few easy ways into the nation of Israel. It's got the ocean, right, on, on the Mediterranean on the west side, got the mountains on the east side, and there's desert on the south side, which is when they tried to come in the last time. And so entering Canaan from the east, Jericho uh, and that Jordan plain is the main city that you're going to come to. It was one of the uh, most heavily fortified cities in Canaan at the time. Um, it guarded that there was a way into over the mountains from Jericho, and, and it guarded that way. And so they needed to deal with Jericho. Of course, you can, as a military commander, you would never leave a stronghold behind you, right? Because then you could be uh, surrounded from the front and the back, and that's just, that's not how to <laughs> win a war, right? So it, Jericho had to be dealt with. And so the spies get into the city, and in a divinely planned meeting, end up at the house of Rahab, who is a prostitute. You know, it makes sense. The city's on alert. They know the Israelites are camped on the other side of the Jordan. They're, they're, the city is on alert. And so um, that would be a place that strangers wouldn't attract too much attention. We don't know much about Rahab. We don't know much about her past, really. Why she was a prostitute. You know, normally you would not choose, that wouldn't be a, a profession that you would choose. Possibly, but there wasn't a lot of options for women at that time. Um, possibly she was a widow. That would make sense, why she would have a house. Um, others have theorized maybe she was, uh, you know, an ex-concubine of the king or something like that. Um, either way, she was a prostitute. Some have tried to sanitize the account of Rahab and to just say, oh, she was just an innkeeper. We don't see any evidence of that in the text. The New Testament accounts you know, talk about Rahab, uh, called Rahab the prostitute. There's no evidence that she was an innkeeper as well. You know, doing so really diminishes God's work of redemption and transformation. It, it minimizes the work that God can do, you know, and uh, just to appease our whatever uh, squeamishness or something about the topic. Um, <laughs> share this story. I, I was debating about sharing it. Um, the, it was kind of a modern account in, in a fictional sense. Um, we like, my family, we like Star Wars. Anybody like a Star Wars fan here? Yeah, good. Um, most of you would know the character of, of Han Solo from, from Star Wars. You know, he's kind of this, he's a, played by Harrison Ford. He's a smuggler, a rogue, you know, rafish kind of guy. And what's interesting is that over the years, um, industry executives have tried to downplay his roguishness and his, um, you know, wayward past, so to speak, and to kind of sanitize the character. A couple examples. Uh, one, 
is um, in the, the bar scene, the cantina scene. He's got the, the alien there across from him, Greedo, and the, he, Greedo's going to take him in for, for, for this money. And, and, um, and so the, the big debate, right? Did, did Han shoot first or did Greedo? Well, obviously Han shot first. And um, just throwing that up. So, but really, and some have really tried to downplay that and say, oh no, he would never do that, right? And it's like, well, no, he's kind of this, this not a nice guy, really. And um, yeah, he, he wanted to save his own skin. Another example, um, what he got in trouble for was carrying this thing called spice. Now, the, the, um, in that Star Wars, universe, whatever, it's, it's a drug. It's really, he was a drug runner. And um, executives have said, oh no, it, it, it's not. It's actually, um, it, it's actually a food additive, right? So he's like, he's getting busted for carrying a food additive? Like, really? Um, which doesn't make sense, right? And it's like, no, the, these things inform and tell the story of the character, show that he really was this you know, roguish, um, amoral kind of character. And it diminishes from the transformation that he goes to, you know, help the rebellion. He's giving up his wayward past, his amoral past, and is now making, you know, a new start. It diminishes that. And, and that's what, trying to sanitize um, the, you know, the story of Rahab. It may be an uncomfortable truth, but it's the truth, and um, it's in the Bible. We, we need to teach the truth as it is. So back to the text. News travels fast. The king hears that the spies had come into town, and he hears that they went to Rahab's house. So he sends men to Rahab's house and asks Rahab to hand the spies over. And amazingly, she doesn't. She doesn't obey her king and the soldiers, you know, coming, coming to her. Um, she actually sides with the Israelite spies um, and secretly hides the men on, on the roof under some, some grain, some flax that was drying, and, and actually lies to the king's men. Says, yes, they were there, but left and went out the gate again before it closed. And, um, you know, even put, <laughs> embellishes a little bit more, urges the guards to pursue them, you know? And it's kind of that classic misdirection technique, right? Oh, yeah, they went that away. Go and get them. And, and they did, which, um, you know, is, is brilliant. So was it ultimately right for Rahab to lie? This is a much debated uh, topic as well in this chapter. Was it right for her to lie? Well, no. It's not right to lie. But not to, again, justify and excuse her actions. She was a pagan woman living in a pagan city. She hadn't been taught the law of God. You know, should she be held to account for something that she doesn't know? We don't know. That's up to God, right? We're responsible to the truth of God presented to us. A greater revelation of that truth equals a greater accountability to the truth. 
you know, we will all one day stand before God to give account of our words and actions. And we trust that God, the righteous judge, will take everything into account, our thoughts and intents, and will judge us accordingly. And we're thankful, though, as followers of Christ, that he has taken the punishment of God's wrath for sin for us. And so we can stand before him justified, made righteous through the blood of Jesus. The question we can ask ourselves, though, is what have we done or not done with the truth presented to us? So God, he works with sinful fallen people in the world, and he is able to redeem our choices and our failures. And little did the spies know that God was working in the heart of Rahab, this pagan prostitute, preparing her for this moment, that they would have an unexpected ally in an enemy city. Isn't God so awesome how he sovereignly works all things out for his purpose? Amen. We see, we'll see more of how God was working in Rahab's life and her faith and hope in the true God. In verse 8, it says, Before the men lay down, she came up to the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So Rahab, after this, comes up and to the roof to talk to the two spies. And she makes two amazing declarations of faith. One, that she knows God has given the Israelites the land, and two, that the Lord is the one true God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's, that's amazing that the Lord has worked that faith into her heart. It's also amazing the reason for her faith of hearing the wonders of what God did for the nation of Israel, of coming out of Egypt, of the miraculous crossing and drying up the Red Sea so the Israelites could come through and then putting it back when they tried to pursue them. Of the Lord helping them to defeat the armies of the Amorite kings, Sihon and Og, who were two strong um, kings, had, had powerful armies, and would not let the Israelites cross through their land. Um, but God gave them the battle, gave them the victory in battle over them, which um, for you know, a bunch of people, ex-slaves coming out of uh, Egypt 
really, you know, wouldn't, would be unexpected. So the Lord was with the Israelites. These were not ordinary, everyday things. They defied description. It was obvious that the Israelites had supernatural help from their God. He was for them. And they were coming for Canaan, the land God had promised them. And so this struck fear into the residents of Jericho and really all of the land. How could they fight against this powerful God who was fighting battles, doing amazing miracles for this uh, nation of Israel? Of course, they couldn't fight against God. You can try, but it's a losing battle. And Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the purpose of godly fear is really to drive us to our knees before a holy God in worship to him. However, if we stubbornly stay in our pride and our fear, it'll turn into resentment and then bitterness and then anger. Right now, the world is gripped in multiple, in the pandemic, in multiple um, things going on. The world is gripped in fear. How will we, as God's people, respond to that? Well, Rahab chose the first path, to humble herself and to worship God and to put her faith in him. Now, it wasn't a strong faith. It wasn't a perfect faith. She didn't have all her theology all worked out, but it was a sincere faith, and God accepted it. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, she is commended for her faith among the other Old Testament heroes. And looking back, it may be easy for us to just see her as, uh, on the surface as, as a harlot and as a liar. God looked deeper, though, at her heart. He saw her faith and was pleased. And as we'll see, not unlike her great-great-grandson, David, for Samuel Verse uh, 16, or chapter 16, verse 7, God said to Samuel, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. She was also commended for her faith by the Apostle James. James 2.25, he says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. She wasn't saved by her works. She was saved by her faith in the Lord. But she had a true faith. Her faith spurred her to works, to help the spies. You know, where is our faith at? Do we have a faith that works? Are we spurred to do God's work? Rahab also had a faith that hoped, a faith that trusted God as the one to come to her help. Her heart is for her family, and she intercedes that they might be saved from destruction. And many of us have unsaved family members and friends, and also their salvation is our hope as well. So Rahab asked the spies for a sign that her family would be spared. 
And the men promised her, on pain of death even, that if she doesn't betray them to the king, they will be faithful to save her and be kind to her family when they take the city. Verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built, into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given all the lands into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of this. So after she had secured this pledge from the spies to save her family when the Israelites came to take Jericho, Rahab then helped the spies escape. It says she lowered the spies down the wall with a rope from her window. And as the account says, her house was built into the wall of the city. And throughout various archaeological digs over the past hundred years or so, archaeologists have been able to picture what ancient Jericho would have looked like. It, the main part of the city was built on top of a hill or a tell, as most cities were in that time. It was surrounded by a sloped earthen embankment about um, 50 feet high or so or more. At the base of the embankment, there was 12 to 15 foot high stone walls surrounding the embankment. And then on top of those walls were another mud brick walls about 20 feet high. And at the top of the crest, of this embankment, there was also 20-foot-high mud brick walls. So it was a very formidable uh, city as far as its fortifications. Very hard, almost impossible for an army to, uh, to take that city. As the archaeologists have gone through their work and, and research, they've discovered that um, really most of that lower brick wall was gone. And as they found in their excavations, piles of brick, as if the wall was in fact torn down. Piles of brick at the base of the embankment fallen from above. 
However, a part of the wall on the north side still stands. And they've actually found houses built into that brick wall, maybe even Rahab's house. So again, archaeology confirms the biblical account, even though some of these archaeologists back in the 90s, I believe, were actually trying to disprove <laughs> the biblical account because people, well, they haven't found the evidence of these walls coming down. But sure enough, over multiple excavations, that's what they exactly have found. So Rahab tells the spies, gives them advice to go hide in the hills to avoid the patrols, looking for them, and then after three days to head to their camp. And the men swear to keep their end of the bargain with Rahab and instruct her to have all of her family come to her house and not to go out when, when the Israelites are, are attacking the city. And they give her, as a symbol of which uh, of the house to protect, they give her a, a red rope to tie in the window so that that house would be spared from destruction. You know, it's not unlike thinking about it, uh, the red blood on the doorposts at Passover to be spared from destruction. And over the years, many commentators, even ancient commentators, um, have seen the red cord as a symbol of the blood of Jesus. And without the scarlet cord, Rahab wouldn't be saved. Rahab and her family wouldn't be saved. And without the blood of Jesus applied to our hearts, we can't be saved. Joshua would save Rahab because she trusted in God, but the rest of Jericho would be judged. Likewise, Jesus saves those who trust in him, but the rest of those who reject him will be judged by him. And Rahab immediately put her faith in the symbol and the salvation that that cord represented. She immediately went and tied it on her window. And she immediately trusted the words of the two spies. It says, according to your words, so be it, or, or amen. May it be so. And so the spies did as she uh, advised. They went down the wall and they hid in the hills for three days and then went back to Joshua and told him all that had happened. And they gave a good report. Now, the military and, uh, you know, in, in inspection or um, reconnaissance, there really wasn't much of a military reconnaissance this time, but they left a report about the work of God and um, that God was with them. God had given them the land, and that the people are afraid. And so that, that, was, a, that was a good report um, to back to Joshua. So I've said we don't know much about Rahab's past, but we do know some of her future. She was saved and her family from Jer Jericho's destruction and brought out to the nation, the camp of the nation of Israel. We see that um, in the genealogy of Jesus, she's actually a part of the, one of the four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. She was saved from Jer or she married a man named Salmon, had a son named Boaz, who married Ruth, another one 
of the women in Jesus' genealogy, uh, another Gentile, a Moabitist. Ruth and Boaz had a son, Obed, who had a son, Jesse, who had a son, David. So she's the ancestor of David and, again, in the lineage of Jesus himself. And the, the, the women in Jesus' genealogy all have a bit of a checkered past, you know? And I think that shows that no one is beyond God's mercy and grace. His salvation is for everyone, and that God can work in and through anyone's life. So maybe today you're listening thinking, okay, that's great and all. God did that in their lives, but God can't do that in my life. God can't use me. I've failed. I've sinned. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm not talented. I have a disability. I'm poor. Well, congratulations, you're in good company. Because if you look through the Bible and history, these are the people that God uses. You know, God's not looking for perfection, but for devotion. To be faithful, to be available, and to be teachable. And for those who would give their broken hearts to God, for him to cleanse them, and heal them, and transform them, and reign in, and use for his glory. These are definitely challenging times that we're in, the most that many of us have ever seen. And many in our community, even in our church, are struggling, maybe financially, maybe physically, maybe emotionally. May we be the people of God to surrender to him, to be the conduits to bring his love and gospel to a broken world. To challenge people's expectations so that they would look at what God did through us and say, wow, I never expected God to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless you, we love you, we worship you. Nothing is impossible for you, God. You are an awesome God who does amazing things, Lord. And we just are in awe. We thank you for the work that you have done. As we saw in this story, through Rahab, Lord, and her faith in you that caused her to do works for you. Lord, help us to have a similar faith. Lord, give us a hunger and a desire to know you more, to grow in you, to know your word, and to serve you and glorify you. Lord, we can do nothing in our, in our own strength, Lord. It is only you. So Lord, give us, give us your strength. Give us your empowerment to um, meet the challenges of the time that we're in, to live for you, to glorify you, and to do the unexpected for you. We ask this all in the name of Jesus.